0: what happens is and we're coming up to this passover the sinless lamb of god sacrificed, slain before the foundation of the world he died in our place he was without sin and he took our place on the cross so god is now just he became sin who knew no sin so that god could be just and merciful merciful to the sinner and then his son would receive the just penalty for our sins he died in our place, which means we receive that by, by faith and by grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ paid it, and God gave us salvation. There's no, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. No one is sinless that's ever done what Christ did, prophesied, fulfilled it, and we receive that by faith. And the minute we receive that, all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He has been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. If you can lose your eternal salvation, it was never eternal to begin with. Ponder that. Hello? He has been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. You can't even remove yourself. So we're justified. Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? And, you know, I, I can look at some people who profess the name of Christ, and yet I don't see... The Bible says you'll know them by their fruits. I can't judge them unto condemnation, but certainly for identification. And by your actions, I'm I'm wondering if Christ is really your Lord. Well, justification and sanctification are two different things. Sanctification means set apart. This is another term we're using tonight. Set apart. Set apart means we have offered our lives to God's kingdom. Not my will be done, but thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, here's my life, dead to myself, alive to Christ. I'm here to serve you not myself. I have been crucified with Christ. It's not my ego. It's not my passions. It's, not my, it's you. I'm here to serve you. I set my life apart for you. Now, we're his vessel. And by the way, the holy vessels in the temple, you ever follow that? As they're going through the wilderness, these holy vessels, you know what they were? They were just beat up old pots and pans. That's it. What made them special? God chose them. He chose them. And in choosing them, they were sanctified. Set apart for what? Sanctified means set apart. Sanctified means set apart. Set apart for what? Set apart for the master's use. Well, when we were purchased with the blood of Christ, we're no longer our own. We have been purchased for his use, the master's use. Now, you've heard the story. I love this mug. I got it in Cyprus. It's a Starbucks mug. I love the feel of it. I love the weight of it. I love the girth of it because it holds the six shots that I have every morning. Look at that, hand still steady. <laughs> and I just love this mug. It's my favorite mug. And I remember when I was living over on Kenmore Circle, I, I had my coffee. I did a little latte thing. I walked outside. We were doing tomato plants. And they were up on the back cinder block wall. And uh, I, I put the coffee mug up on the, uh, on the cinder block wall and tied up the tomato plant because it was starting to go down a little bit and they were new in their infancy. And you know how fast those things grow. I'm tying it up. I get distracted. I think somebody called me inside. I go inside. I go inside. Forgot about my coffee cup. And of course, you know, tomato plants vociferously growing. And I couldn't find my coffee cup. Looking in the cupboard, where's my coffee cup? Couldn't remember. The master's vessel, my favorite vessel, absent. Nowhere to be found. The season went on, plucked all the tomatoes. The tomato plant died. One day I went out there to go pull it out. And lo and behold, there's my mug. Well, because I had used milk with the latte, of course, the mold had really gone to town on it. And what was remaining, it was nasty. It was still my favorite mug, but I couldn't use it because I had to clean it first. Ponder that. You see, we, we spend a day indulging in filth. And We come in kind of cold. and We're just, Lord, we want to be used, but my mind is not on the things of you. My heart is not on the things of you. I, I haven't been interceding in prayer. I haven't been about your business. And, and the water of the word washes us. And the worship cleanses us. And then we become fit for the master's use, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in his stride again. That's sanctification, being set apart. And then we talk about this third term. We try to somehow play with it. We think we call it glorification, that we're going to be glorified. Well, that's true. But as Paul points out in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this idea of glorification, you go into the Shekinah glory of God in the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God resided between the two seraphim on the mercy seat. It was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. God's presence was in there. The priest would have to go in once a year, and he'd have a rope tied around his ankle with bells on the bottom of the robe he wore. <clears throat> and he'd have to go in, and if the bells stopped ringing, they heard a thud. They knew that he had passed or out perished in the presence of a holy God. And they'd have to drag him out. They wouldn't have to wait a year to go in and find the body with the next priest who would come in. And now we can approach God boldly, the throne of grace boldly. Why? Because the temple where this Shekinah glory of God resides is now in the hearts of men. He sits on the throne of our life in this mercy seat and he's able to take, take play, uh, that place in our heart and sit on the throne of our life because he is just. And Christ's blood cleansed us of all unrighteousness and now we are righteous not because of what we've done but because of what he's done we're his favorite vessel and those pots and pans still had to be cleaned to be used at certain times they were still his favorite vessel and that's you and that's me but Paul says okay what role does the law play now what role does the law play because first time he went up in Exodus 24 he came down with these things and they were all just having a field day and they had I believe that's where they had um, uh, turned this gold into a gold calf and he got frustrated and threw down the commandments and and the people were upset and and then uh in exodus 34 this is where we start to see his face glow but before i get to that i want to read to you one other area if i can find it yeah here it is i want to read this to you before we look at exodus 34 if you would turn to jeremiah jeremiah 31 jeremiah 31 Exodus 24, Exodus 34 is all passed. The law has been given, the Levitical laws. The nation of Israel is under the law. They're operating in that context. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years with this downloaded moral app of these Ten Commandments. No standing army, no police force. Dwelt together. Amazing work of God. Once previous slaves, three to five million people now, now operating in unity. They had their difficulties. We saw the Cora's rebellion and a couple of other things, but for the most part, these people got along really well. And then all of a sudden, Jeremiah, after the people are in exile, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, they've been put into exile for two hundred years. God gives them this prophecy, and then he goes on to say in Jeremiah thirty one. He says, verse thirty one. If you'll look at that, verse thirty one. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them up out of the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin will be remembered no more. This is when the Messiah comes. This is when they're saved by grace through faith. And all of a sudden, this law is written on their hearts. You see, when you became a Christian, the Bible says you're a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come, and you are now the temple of the living God. You are the holy of holies. You are You are justified, and now this idea, sanctified, set apart for the Lord, and his glory resides in you, the Shekinah glory of God, and this is pretty remarkable. And we are now motivated, not by a have to. You must observe these. Do this, or this will happen. Do this, or this will happen. Don't do this, and this will happen. And so it's a have to. But now... As God's people, it's no longer a have to. We don't have to do it to be saved. We do it because we are saved. It's not by obligation we observe the law, but by adoration. Does everyone understand that? That's a new realm. This is Jeremiah 31. They were longing for that time. But it takes us back, if we're going to cover the passage in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, we need to go back to Exodus 34. So if you turn with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. That neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy on thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So Moses made haste, um, verse 8, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And they said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance, And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among you, uh, uh, among you whom you are, shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take heed. To yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, and lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make you sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invite you to eat his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Let's stop for a moment. What separates the Jews from the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Amorites? Is it their race? It's what they teach their children, right? Their gods. Yes? Yes? Yeah, the Jews are monotheistic. And uh but the reality is God comments on these Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites. He comments that God's small g and that you marry their children, you're going to sacrifice at their altars. And has anyone ever heard I'm not talking personally, but has anyone ever heard of a husband and wife of two different faiths having children and wondering how they're going to be raised. Yeah. And there's contention there. Yes? The, the purpose for the question is to get response. <clears throat> yeah, and there's tension. And you've got that whole family lineage to contend with and this is... In, and. And so you, you want to be equally yoked. And you want to, And when I pray for my children, I say, God, I, I, I ask you protect my children's purity and their innocence. Give them a supernatural love for your word, a heart to proclaim it. Uh, I, I pray that you would give them a boldness. I ask that they be mighty in their gener- generation for declaring your truths. And I pray that you bless them with a godly spouse, that together they'd serve you with godly children, godly grandchildren, for generations to come that this lineage would honor you until your return. That's my prayer. i prayed it for my kids every night. And now I'm starting to see another generation. And I'm watching these children grow up in the love and the admonition of the Lord. I'm seeing them marry godly spouses. And they're of one heart and one mind and one purpose. And, and that doesn't just happen by osmosis. I'm, I'm praying that. I'm asking God to do this. And, and this is what, this is the idea. There's no difference. There's no difference in their DNA. They're all Middle Eastern. The difference is in their Ideology, theology. We worship the God who created all of this. You worship gods with a small g that are just gods that are designed for your passions. Aphrodite is a goddess of pleasure. Uh, Bacchus, the Roman god, is a god of alcohol. You, you, You take those things that possess you and you just make them deities. But there's a God who's greater than all of our passions. And he has a purpose for our life to bring us life and life more abundant. So he says, you make no molten gods. And he repeats all of these commandments. He talks about these feasts. He talks about the sixth day of rest. And then uh, if you'll drop down to verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words. For according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights and neither ate bread nor drank water. That's quite a fast. That's supernatural, by the way. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that his skin, everyone say skin, that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses beholding, the skin of his face shone, and they were all afraid to come near him. And then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children came near. He gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put the veil on his face. And he would continue to do this. Now, they didn't have flashlights. They didn't have halogen lamps. They didn't have any of that stuff. And so this idea of a glowing face, it, it's not miraculous to me because I wake up seeing Michelle. And that's, that's yeah, there you go. She's not here. That would have been great. Um, and I have, I, I'm, it's very important that I do that because we're celebrating our anniversary on Sunday. So you let her know I said that, will you? But the idea is his face was shining. It was radiant. Um, you know, almost like uh, you can do this in Hollywood with Superman. And this radiant glow. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is this idea is his skin. Anyone ever heard the term beauty is only skin deep? He's the moon, not the sun. He's reflecting the glory of God. He's not radiating it. The moon is bright. Oh, what a beautiful night. It's amazing. Look at that moon. It's so bright. All it's doing is reflecting the light of the sun just reflecting the light of the sun it doesn't have any power in of itself it's reflecting the light of the sun the sun is the one that generates the energy and the power Uh, that's why you see stars people say did you see the visibility today the visibility was at least three miles you want to see visibility look at night you see billions of miles away that's visibility visibility comes when we're going through the darkest seasons of our life we tend to see things very clearly but here his skin is radiating what's the point the point is this and this is kind of what i see in in uh, second corinthians chapter three this this is a thin representation of god's glory let's go back and i'm almost finished and then we'll have the priest come and share let's go back to second corinthians chapter three But if the ministry of death, verse 7, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which uh, glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? And by the way, have you ever seen the yarmulke that goes on the top of a Jewish man's head? You've seen that? Well, the idea is that's the veil that Moses wore. They, they, you don't want the glory to depart. Well, the glory is internally for those who's the, the, that, that the kind of glory of God resides in us. The glory is from the inside out. It's not reflected like a moon. And that's passing away. And it was glorious. This law that was given was transformative. And when applied to three to five million people that were previously slaves, it caused order. It caused them to dwell together. It caused them to, to have this, this ability to enter into a land with jebusites and and amorites and hittites and hivites and all those and, and conquer them and vanquish them and set up a civilization that would span borders and continue to this day it's the only nation in the history of the world that lost its languages and national languages reestablished find another nation like that prophesied that they would be reestablished as a nation that the deserts would bloom i mean you can go on and on and on but this is a remarkable people and god caused them to be remarkable with one thing. He gave them the law. And the law was a school teacher. It showed them this is how you're supposed to live. The problem is you have a sin nature and you're going to fail to be able to accomplish it. But if you strive for this, if you set this standard for your people, you'll have success. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is their approach to any people. You observe these commandments, you will flourish. Now you're going to Fail. But you set that standard, you'll succeed. That's the point of the law. But then he goes on further, and he says, that was glorious, and it established a people and delivered them from slavery, and it was remarkable, but a greater glory that I want to reflect to you, and I want you to understand, Paul says, to a church that is filled with sin, very similar to what we read in James, lay aside filthiness, overflow of wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word. Get that bit in your mouth and let the master control you. How does that happen? By the word of God, looking into that mirror and allowing that word to establish your life. And how is, if you spend no time in the word, you spend no time in that mirror. And he says, this fading glory was big, but the glory that excels is this internal glory. You see, the ministry of condemnation, this law that you would realize I can't keep it, it was, it was glorious. But how much more glorious is this idea of the ministry of the Spirit, that you are the presence, you are you are a temple of the living God. Therefore, since we have such hope, verse 12, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, he was afraid that people would see his glory fading. But Paul is bold he says their minds were blinded because they think they're saved by the observation of law. They, they're so enamored with this law that they don't want anyone to ever break it or walk away from it. But we have freedom in Christ. We're not under the law. We've been set free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's a brand new law. It doesn't mean that we do away with the Levitical law. It doesn't mean we do away with some of these things. Some of them are not necessary. But some of them for civil government are of great need. Uh, verse 16, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. start to realize God I don't have to do this to be saved I get to do this because I am saved that's a remarkable blessing the problem is in the body of Christ we just stop at justification I got my get out of hell free card I'm good to go it's all about grace man stay away from the law you don't need to be preaching all that stuff what role does the law have well you know A nation can survive with just the law. As a matter of fact, a nation needs the law to survive. Children can survive with the law. Civilization can survive with the law. But when it comes to heaven, skin deep doesn't cut it. It's got to go to the heart. Jeremiah 31 is necessary. He needs to save us. He needs to reconcile us. He needs to justify us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And in doing that, then we return to the law not out of obligation but out of adoration so that our children would be raised with a love for the word of God and to apply it in all that they do. And this idea in verse 17 of Second Corinthians 3, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Liberty. You know what's cool about liberty? I've often said, as Thomas Jefferson said, freedom is having choices. Freedom is having choices. Again, I shared this to junior hires. I think you guys heard it last week. Get $100 in your paycheck. You go to a restaurant. Everything on the menu is $100 or less. You have complete freedom to order anything on that menu. Federal government takes 25%. That gives you 25% less choices, that's 25% less freedom. State government takes 25%. You have 50% less choices, that's you have 50% less freedom. County takes 25%. You have 75% less choices, 75% less freedom. And then the city comes along and we take 25%. Now you are what is known as a slave. You work all day for someone else. You're a slave to sin. It controls your life, takes away your family, takes away your livelihood, takes away your job, you become a slave to sin. You can become a slave to government. You can become a slave to anyone who's there to enslave you. How do we establish a covenant? How do we establish a life where, this, where the Lord, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. What is liberty? Liberty is different than freedom. Paul wrote in Galatians, he said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty of for which Christ has set you free. Pretty amazing, isn't it? You know where he wrote that. He was in prison. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, in a Birmingham prison, when condemned by the pastors in the town, you're on the wrong side of history because you're in prison. And his response to the pastors was, no, you're on the wrong side of history because you're not in prison with me. He may have been in chains without freedom, but he was standing in liberty. Liberty is defined as doing what is right. You can always do what's right, even in prison. Chains didn't hold the Apostle Paul. The chains held the guards. And they were changed every three hours. And every one of them came to Christ. As a matter of fact, you know how the church in Rome was planted. None of the disciples made it there. We've got some church history that said maybe Peter ended up there, and that's Catholic in its approach. And the church was planted by Roman soldiers who had been converted as they would transfer in there. And and this guy every three hours, and they're like, "I don't want the next shift, please. I'll pay you." That guy never shuts up. And they were in prison. Not Paul. He says, "I'm here willingly." God has placed me here. His perspective. That's how many of the cap, the, those who are in captivity in, in the Hanoi Hilton end, endured. They realize, I have, I have more liberty in this cell than you have in, in, as a captor or as an appeared captor. I'm free. God is in control. Nothing happens to me that doesn't first pass through his sovereign hand. I'm exercising liberty. I'm standing for those things that matter. And if this means I'm in prison for it, so be it. That's boldness. And Paul says we speak in boldness because where the Spirit, where the Lord is, this now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. You're no longer afraid. There's nothing you can do that will remove you from God's covering. You've been saved by grace through faith. He hasn't given you a spirit of fear. Now, how does this all apply to a culture? The law is a skin deep. It costs three to five million Jews to operate together in a civil society that seemed to work. And here we are today in Christendom where we got our get out of hell free card, but we have absolutely no engagement in the world of government. We've abdicated our responsibility, this idea of of where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. We're watching liberty removed. We don't stand for anything. We don't stand for the unborn. We don't stand for, for marriage. We don't stand for anything. We fold like a house of cards. We're scared. They take away this and they take away that freedom and that freedom and we just stand back. And, and we begin to fight over an ever decreasing piece of the pie. And one day, like the Apostle Paul, we'll stand in that prison and we'll say, stand faster for in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. I, I'm going to make a difference. And 12 men turned the world right side up because they had no fear. This uh, priest, it's it's an in-depth study. So put your study cap on. I know it's Wednesday and you're probably tired. But I have to tell you, if you pay attention, this will be one of the most remarkable videos you'll have ever witnessed. This man blessed me beyond measure. And he talks about this idea. And you've heard me quote him often, but you're going to see it in its entirety. It's 27 minutes long. You'll go home. I promise you. You know what? Just skip the introduction of the priest. Just go straight to the priest talking, and you'll be out of here by eight thirty. You have my word. Can I get a hearty amen? amen. All right, let's show the video. Check it out.
1: Um, I'm Matthew Spaulding, Associate President Dean. For skip Hillsdale the uh, introduction. D.C. Just go
0: right College to the guy the in white.
1: For of increasing human, of increased. Faith. It's nice to find cultural studies and moral theology. At the Turn it up. Of where he will soon be defending his dissertation on Charles de apologia for the primacy of the common good. Father, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Spaulding. Allow me to begin by saying what an honor it is to be here This evening, I first heard of Hillsdale College many years ago in the college seminary. One of the priest professors in philosophy that we had, he said Hillsdale was the best liberal arts college in the country. Uh, And I wondered what was wrong with our little liberal arts college (laughs) where we were studying. But Hillsdale has always been on the map for me. And so it's, uh, it's nice to finally make contact with Hillsdale through the Kirby Center here this evening. Thank you again for the invitation. The wise restraints that make men free, freedom, morality, and the law. Every year at Harvard University's commencement exercises, the university president salutes the law school graduates and officially declares them, quote, qualified to aid in the shaping and application of those wise restraints that make men free. The president's simple but solemn declaration signals to the graduates not only the importance of their chosen avocation, but also the reverence they should bring to it. The president reminds the graduates that by shaping and applying the wise constraints that make men free, the lawyer commits himself or herself to pursuing not only technical excellence in the law, but also wisdom. And the freedom that wisdom promises. To be wise in the law, the president suggests to the graduates, is to know how to employ the right legal means at the right time and in the right way, to bind the wills of their fellow citizens for the sake of increasing human freedom. As gripping a description of law and lawyering as this is, however, is the president's declaration to the law graduates accurate? I'm sure that upon hearing the president's words, not a few graduates are left to wonder, as we might be left to wonder, just how a restraint on human choice can lead to freedom. In our postmodern age, at least, this thought is anathema. Like all political flourishes, the often repeated description of law as the wise constraints that make men free was authored by Harvard law professor John MacArthur Maguire in 1936. It's subject to a variety of interpretations. For example, some read it as a confirmation of the wise and noble quality that law should possess. This is the reading given to McGuire's phrase in one of the church committee reports of the mid-1970s. In its largely negative assessment of the nation's intelligence services, the report warns, The United States must not adopt the tactics of the enemy. Means are as important as ends. Crisis makes it tempting to ignore the wise constraints that make men free. But each time we do so, the, the report continues, each time the means we use are wrong, our inner strength, the strength that makes us free, is lessened. More recently, however, Maguire's description of law has been invoked to underscore not law's wisdom, but its usefulness as a tool to secure freedom, namely the freedom of choice. Drew Faust, Harvard's current president, recently celebrated her university's contribution to the shaping of the American restraints that make men free. Harvard University, she boasts, quote, is where Louis Brandeis shaped the constitutional right to privacy Charles Hamilton Houston prepared to do battle against racial segregation. And and a whole host of individuals, beginning in the 1980s, laid the groundwork for for what is now a constitutional right to marry whomever you love. According to Faust, law's purpose today is not only to place wise restraints on human willing in the interest of freedom, but also in the same interest of freedom to loosen the restraints imposed on choice by previous generations. In the few minutes I have this evening, I do not propose to arbitrate between conflicting interpretations of Maguire's description of law. What I propose instead is to question the paradox that Maguire supposes law to possess. Maguire's description of law as the wise restraint that makes men free turns wholly on the supposed conflict that exists between law and freedom, which for Maguire appears in legal restraint somehow being a cause of freedom. But is this true? Is law really a restraint? Is its use only to bind the will and limit choice? And what of the notion of freedom that this opposes? Is the maximization of choice, which law inherently seems to threaten, the essence of human freedom? My purpose this evening is to examine classical notions of both freedom and law that understand these two realities differently. For the ancients, law and freedom were closely related. They fit hand in glove in large part because the ancients did not reduce law to a a restraint on willing, nor did they reduce freedom to the issue of choice. Looking at the ancient treatment of these two topics, let's begin with freedom. One of the fruits of the Renaissance of virtue ethics in the 20th century has been the firm recognition that the concept of freedom we have in Inherited from modernity, it's very different from the notion of freedom possessed by ancient thinkers and their medieval commentators. Beginning in the early modern period, philosophers generally, and moral theorists in particular, began to gravitate toward a notion of freedom that some have termed a freedom of indifference. This notion of freedom stands in stark contrast to the more classical notion which can be termed a freedom for excellence. What distinguishes these two notions of freedom is the premium that the modern notion places on the freedom and the independence of the human will. Now, it isn't the case that the classical notion had no understanding of the freedom that accompanies human choice. It certainly did, as the works of Plato and Augustine and of Aristotle and Aquinas demonstrate. What changes in the modern notion is that the intellect and the will are no longer seen to work in tandem in the subject's deliberation and judgment and command of an act, where the intellect is spontaneously inclined to truth and the will is spontaneously inclined to the good. According to the modern notion, in order for choice to be really free, and thus for the person to be really free, the will must detach itself from the intellect, such that the will can stand indifferent to the claims of truth. To be free, the will must act according to its own lights and power. To be free, the modern's thought, the will must remain unmoved before the good. To be free, the will must be moved only by itself. In modern moral theory, therefore, the will, once uncoupled from the intellect, assumes a new role in human action. It steps into the driver's seat. No longer subject to the will's indications about what it is good for the person to pursue, the will takes on the role of an arbiter between the promptings of the intellect on the one hand and the promptings of the passions on the other hand will stands above what the intellect knows to be true and with the passion's desire to choose freely and indifferently between the intellect and the passions. As free, the will could also chart its own course and choose neither the promptings of the intellect or those of the passions. The heart has its own reasons about which reason knows nothing, Pascal says. Modernity's preference to regard the will as indifferent, and as the indifferent arbiter between intellect and passion has a long history whose details we cannot recount now. Suffice it to say that the effects of the modern shift toward the notion of freedom as indifferent remain with us. Today it is generally accepted that the person is identified by the freedom of his will, free in the sense of being indifferent to nature and nature's ordering. Indifferent to natural and revealed truth. Indifferent to sense and passion. Indifferent not by accident, but as a prerequisite to the will's being and remaining free. The novelty of modernity's understanding of human freedom as indifferent appears clearly when we compare it to the classical notion of freedom as the fruit of excellence. Key to the classical understanding of freedom is that freedom does not precede choice so much as it follows many instances of choosing the good. According to the ancients, a person becomes freer as he achieves higher goods in life. As a result, freedom, according to the classical understanding, is not the prerequisite for choice, but rather the perfection of choosing well. According to this notion of freedom, the free person is not the one who stands indifferently before the good, but rather is inclined toward it, embraces it, and frees himself to enjoy this good in its most perfect form. And since the free person is the baseball player who bats 300, the quarterback who throws for five thousand yards a season, the pianist who can improvise a Beethoven sonata, the ice skater who can land a triple axel, the linguist who recites Virgil or Dante, the poet who masters the use of metaphor, and the chef who can make a perfect souffle. These persons are free because once drawn to a particular good, they free themselves of every ignorance and weakness that keeps them from enjoying their desired good in the most excellent way. In this sense, the free person is not just a chooser, but an achiever. One who employs choice to attain the excellent that stands before the person as an object of his desire. This point about the classical notion of freedom cannot be stressed enough. The freedom for excellence is born not from the will standing aloof to the good, but rather from the will's desire for the good. Freedom grows out of the spontaneous attraction of the will to all that is good. This attraction of the will serves as a driving force pushing the person to pursue the good in terms both of creating opportunities for the good, as well as overcoming the obstacles that impedes one's progress toward it. Drew Brees is freer than I to enjoy the good of football. Michelle Kwan is freer than I to enjoy the good of ice skating. Bobby Fisher is freer than I to enjoy the good of chess. These persons are freer than I am in all of these areas, both because they love their sports and their games more than I do, and also because they are free of the hindrances that keep them from playing their games and their sports excellently. When we apply this notion of freedom to the moral life, several interesting facts emerge. First of all, we see that freedom comes not at the beginning of one's moral maturation, but instead at the end of it. At the beginning of the moral life, one lacks freedom before the good. One's vision of the excellent is undeveloped. One's will for the weak, for the excellent is weak. This is why chicken nuggets and grilled cheese sandwiches appear on most children's menus and not coq vin, or goat cheese truffles. But step by step, the slow and persistent pursuit of the good leads one to appreciate the excellent better. And the will is strengthened by minor victories in the pursuit of virtue to take the risks necessary to win major ones. It takes the freedom of excellence to render a man his due in justice, to enjoy a fine meal in temperance, or to face down one's enemies with courage. Something else we notice about the moral life when we regard freedom not as the maximization of choice, but as the possession of the excellent, is that the possession of the excellent minimizes choice in a person's life. The higher we move toward the excellent, the more we grow in freedom, the fewer options there are that remain for us. For example, to be an NFL quarterback requires that one spend more time on the football field than on the tennis court. To be a champion skater requires that one spend more time on the ice than at the mall. To be a champion chess requires that one spend more time playing the game with others than sitting alone at Starbucks. It's the same when we grow in the virtues. To grow in justice means that cheating on my taxes is no longer an option for me. To become courageous means that postponing difficult decisions is no longer an option for me. Temperate means that daily trips to McDonald's or even the occasional look at pornography is no longer an option for me. And to lose these options, the sake of excellence, does not make me less free. The loss of these options frees me to act with excellence and perfection. To think otherwise is to think that someone like Mother Teresa was free to abandon Calcutta and move to Vegas. Aristotle uses two images to make this point about the inverse relation of excellence and choice. The first involves, interestingly enough, a brick. A person can maintain his independence and indifference before the good, Aristotle says, But such a one remains free only as a brick thrown on a pile remains free from the constraints of the house. What he means by that is that the brick on the pile might appear freer than the brick in a wall. It has more options available to it. But this freedom is illusory. Though constrained by other bricks and the mortar between them, the brick in the wall is freer to do what it is that bricks do, which is to constitute Parts of a wall. The brick on the pile keeps its options open, but it never achieves the excellence of brickness. The other example that Aristotle offers is more personal in nature. He compares the respective freedoms of a servant and a son in a household. Now, both the servant and the son follow the commands of the father or the head of the household. But from the view of indifference, Aristotle says, the servant is freer than the son. The servant follows the orders of the head of the household, to be sure, but he is less restrained by the good of the household than the son is. The servant does not have responsibility for the household. He only follows orders, but is free to pursue other things at will. From the viewpoint of excellence, however, the son is freer. His life is more excellent, for it more resembles the life of the head of the household. His options are fewer, but for that reason, the son is freer to contribute to the good of the household after the manner of the father, not out of obedience like the servant, but by choice, like the father. These two examples of the brick in the wall and the son of the household reveal that for Aristotle, freedom is more than the ability to choose between contraries. Freedom involves surrendering to the constraints of the good, to arrive freely through the perfection of intellect, will, and passion at the exim The distinction between the freedom of indifference and the freedom of excellence show allows us to unravel the paradox of Maguire's description of law as the wise restraint that makes men free Law appears only as a restraint to the one who believes that human freedom is an f in essence An indifferent freedom. If the will is not inclined naturally to any good, if it does not spontaneously hunger for what is excellent, if it finds its perfection in being indifferent in the face of the good, then law is a restraint that compels choice. Law is to be resisted as unnatural, but accepted nonetheless because of the social benefit it offers the individual. Contrary, if human freedom is in essence the freedom for excellence, law appears as something else. It is a necessary guide for the individual toward the common good, so that he might coordinate his activity with others toward the social good he desires. Law in this sense is not a restraint on the will, but first and foremost a guide for the intellect so that the individual can act of his own prudence in striving for the excellent. Law might reduce his options, to be sure, but in doing so, law only reflects the natural restraints on choice that the good itself imposes on individuals. A restraint on choice that frees individuals who, on the social plane, act together towards the excellent Of peaceful social interaction. These two notions of law are important to distinguish. Whether law is a restraint on the indifferent or a guide toward the excellent is an important thing for the lawmaker to know. After all, for whom does the lawmaker legislate? For the brick on the pile or the brick in the wall? For the servant of the household? or for the son of the father. The administrative state is the regime for the indifferent, as the Julia character from President Obama's 2012 campaign makes evident. Such a state imposes certain obligations on the individual so that the individual can seemingly retain as many options as possible. By contrast, the republic is the regime for the son, the citizen whose freedom is found in bearing responsibility for the social good. This responsibility demands a lot of the citizen. His life is less given to caprice, but he is freer due to the excellence of the good he achieves. In conclusion, then, if we could rewrite Maguire's description of law, we would have to expand on it a bit. Our description would sacrifice something of Maguire's poetry in exchange for accuracy. In line with Aristotle and Aquinas, we might say that law is, quote, the wise and authoritative counsel that directs men and women to the free and excellent sharing of the common good.
0: It's 8.30. I will close with this final thought. The intellect and the will. I was going to show you a video of a young lady who espouses that white privilege exists. And the commentator asks, um, how is that so? And and she commented that capitalism is a white idea. And his comment was, so you're saying that we need to remove our intellect and embrace a different political philosophy as opposed to this idea how wealth is created and accountability of man and, and the, so forth. And she said, he said, name one country where socialism has survived. And, and she said, uh, Northern Europe. He said, he said to her, so you're telling me that we should embrace the ideals of Northern Europe, which is more white than the United States of America, at which point she was without words. Another comment was a young lady who said uh, we can't build the wall and then the commentator said well what about uh, this previous president and this previous president and this previous president who all said build the wall what do you have to say about that? No response. The reason why is because when we don't work on the intellect of a human being to understand right and wrong and apply restraint to educate them then they'll never obtain excellence of thought and they'll never understand how life is to operate and when we operate strictly by the will, removing the intellect, and move by our debased passions, we end up with a mess, and and we don't see absolutes. And and the idea that that we're seeing here is this is a culture that God picked, and he gave them their moral constraint, this law that was to guide their intellect and their will. And, And they flourished. And here we are again with the scriptures have to be applied in that capacity that the church has this internal glory that we're not, we're not saved by observational law. We're, we're saved by grace through faith. So we have a boldness to stand upon that, to establish liberty, this, this law of liberty that sets the captives free. If we don't understand it and educate the next generations, as Jeremiah said, then we're in a world of hurt. And so this, this concept that Paul was putting forward transformed Europe. Corinth then went into Western Europe, crossed the, the Atlantic Ocean, and we have a nation representing less than 3% of the entirety of the world's population over the history of, of the earth that is responsible for more patents, more Nobel Peace Prize winners, more wealth accumulation, more generosity than any other nation in the history of the world. So, so we have to understand the application of both. You don't discard one because you're justified. You apply the sanctification in order for a nation where the, the leaven that is infused into this lump to cause it to rise to the glory of God. We are that instrument, and God wants us to be bold to apply that. That's the whole point of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Any questions, ask me later. I'm three minutes late. God bless you. Amen.